Welcome to the Crater Podcast, a weekly show where we discuss all the JavaScript news that's happened on Crater.io this week. This episode is for Friday, August 19th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by Modulus.io. They're an easy way to deploy your application, no matter the language or framework that you're using. They are great for deploying JavaScript applications using technologies such as Node.js, Meteor.js, Feathers.js, and many other frameworks. They recently updated their build process for Meteor to include uploading the code to a build server. They use a Docker component to create the build and output a consistent application that gets sent to the servos making it more reliable and easier for you to deploy your Meteor application. Check them out, modulus.io. DigitalOcean is the best place to get your Meteor application off the ground quickly and the easiest to scale when you find success. I host crater.io there, so I understand DigitalOcean. Start with a pre-configured one-click launch, such as Node.js, to get it up and running in 55 seconds or build the exact infrastructure you need with root access to servers running 100% SSD and state-of-the-art data centers around the world. DigitalOcean is the fastest-growing cloud infrastructure provider because it's built for developers and laser-focused on its mission to create simple and elegant solutions for developers and teams. Use the promo code CRATER10 on the billing page when you sign up for $10 to get started. Welcome, Crater fans. I'm your host, Josh Owens, along with my co-host, Abby Iyer. Hey, Abby. How's it going? Good, man. It's good. Things have been really busy for me, but can't complain, man. What about you? Nice. Yeah. It's just good to like be home and be podcasting. Like The kids are back in school. I feel like I'm getting settled back into a regular schedule now. A little chaotic over the summer. Kids are back in school now? Yeah, they went back this week. So they started Monday, which is like way earlier than I remember school starting when I was a kid. Like we always went the last week in August. Yeah. <laughs> so this week we are going to be talking about building real-time React applications with Redux and Meteor, GraphQL, and the amazing Apollo client. I love that title. <laughs> 141 is out and react binding patterns five approaches to handling this the interesting thing too i've been working on getting the new version of uh crater up and running and so there are a number really of people good. have been beta testing it including avi looks amazing man it's stupid fast and it's better than meteor forums so yeah I feel like maybe a little bit of commenting has died off just because like navigating to the post and leaving a comment was a very slow process. And with the new version, it's like silly fast. And plus like the, the other nice benefit is we'll be able to itch the pre-render servers and just use Meteor at this point because it's all server-side rendered. And then like all of this, all of it has been major heavy lifting from Sasha, and you know, I've just been kind of tweaking and deploying an updated version. So it's a good showcase for um, what you can do after the Blaze era. You know, before 
Crater was done in Blaze, and so was all telescope apps. Mm-hmm. And now you have this opportunity to use newer technology. So it's a good example of what you can do with the current, you know, tools yeah. out there. And, like, it's worth noting, too, like, the back end has stayed relatively the same. Like, there's been some small tweaks. Um, and I actually have, like, both versions deployed now, like the Blaze version and the React version. The React version is significantly faster, and it's not because the back end has been sped up or anything. It's because it's it's built in React, which has been kind of an interesting thing to watch happen. Kind of excited about that. And uh, I also launched the uh, site for Space Camp 2.0. So if uh, anyone is interested in coming to that, we still have some tickets left. I launched to a lot of the previous attendees and, and we sold quite a few tickets there, but we have a few left and it's going to be in Corolla, North Carolina this year. And we've got like a mansion right near the beach, which is going to be amazing. So check it out. Camp.spacedojo.com. You can find out more info. Yeah. It's also during my birthday. So is it really? Yeah. Nice. Weekend, Are you gone? Yeah, dude, I'm going to come. Nice. But I will say this, whenever I go to these meteor things, I only go to the events for a little bit and then I go do my own thing. This will be the same. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not really meteor specific either. So yeah, like, tech. Yeah. yeah. The nice thing is like the other things all occur at the same venue. Right. And like yeah. you sleep there, you hang out there, you play games, drink beer. Like it was, it was a lot of fun last year. Maybe we can get Ben to come down too because I think it's his birthday as well. So that would be yeah, awesome. that'd be awesome. Yeah. All right. So I think this was posted like maybe two weeks ago, but we didn't get a podcast out. But I really, really enjoyed this uh, story about building like a real-time React app with Redux and Meteor because it's it's along the same lines uh, of a story we got from I think Julian before and he was talking about using Asteroid and doing like DDP on the front end and just going and building an app. And I I don't know, it didn't feel quite right to me. But then like I was reading this article and it was like, it just smacked me in the face that this felt like a much better way to implement like a Meteor and React application using Asteroid and, and Redux. And so basically, like the article walks you through it, but he's taking the DDP messages that are coming in or being removed and like processing it all through Redux and it's all just one big Redux source. So you're yeah. like putting mini Mongo on the front end, you're ditching, you know, the actual like Meteor DDP client and instead just using the Asteroid DDP client and your front end is completely separate from your back end, but they still have that communication channel and they can talk back and forth. What people don't realize is DDP is actually really cool. Mm-hmm. You know, like DDP is like one of the things that I wish Meteor actually focused on a little bit more because there's no other client out there that will give you this seamless of integration. I feel like maybe a misstep that MDG made a while back was not getting more behind DDP and trying to push it as a standard. Like Maybe, maybe it's not the smartest standard, right? Like we look at the GraphQL standard and that looks pretty interesting and significantly shakes things up and improves things. Maybe DDP wasn't a significant improvement. Maybe GraphQL hit it more on the nose. And that's why we're seeing that being more interesting. We're seeing Meteor shift to that. But 
at the same time, there's not a ton of specifications for real time. Like we've got Phoenix yeah. channels and we've got action cable and rails and, you know, you got a couple other kind of competing standards, but like no one's really nailed it like they did in Meteor. And I almost feel like what they should have done is just hired a couple of developers from other languages to develop DDP clients mm-hmm. and put them out there and like try to get those communities to latch onto them as well. And that would have become pretty interesting. I think that's what GraphQL will be, but. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, in terms of Apollo, GraphQL subscriptions are, are being worked on by Amanda right now, which is getting ready for 1.5, Meteor 1.5. So there'll be GraphQL subs. But I don't believe they're speaking over DDP or anything like that. So yeah. Apollo, some WebSocket. Interesting enough, so I, I've complained about this before, but like Meteor build times are crazy, right? You know, 1.4.2 or something, they're going to fix it, the next version. They're going to work on it. I hear it every version. But what happened with us is, like, we're at the stage now where we have 9 megs of JavaScript being served to our clients. And it's, like, kind of, like, hit us in the face. We did, like, a page, you know, page speed performance and all that stuff. It's terrible. Google AdWords is, you know, screwing us over because of the, the page load times. And it finally hit us because, you know, once you start making revenue – and you have all these, you know, search engine marketing channels that are being affected directly by page load. Everything just starts making more sense, right? Mm. I feel like our engineering manager previously did not want us to focus on things like that and rather just build features. But now we're at a point where we're making good money and we need to figure out this so we can make more money, right? We had to build the sales dashboard, which most of the time, I think most people will like err on the side of like, oh yeah, let's build an admin dashboard in the app. Right. Yeah. But this admin dashboard is like pretty crazy. I mean, we could have done like a microservice or we could have done something else, but we are trying to ship something super quickly, you know? Mm-hmm. So what we did is we booted up the Asteroid client. We have a Webpack builded app that is just serving an index.html file, bundles all the JavaScript, or whatever, and we're putting that on S3. And now we have a fully functional admin site. That is just HTML, JavaScript, and CSS, and it's connected to Asteroid, and uses reuses all of our APIs that we have on the DDP client. And we use Redux as well on that, too. So I think that if you're struggling of, like, you know, building separate sites and all that, I think Asteroid is super good. It's actually really well built. Um, it relies on a lot of the node-like practices, like event emitters and stuff like that. So it's pretty cool. I mean, I use it. And it's going to be used in production. So it's, it's a good alternative. Also, you could possibly, if you're worried, if you have a big Meteor app right now, this is like the perfect way to get off of Meteor if you don't want to be a Meteor anymore. You start moving all your front end out of Meteor into, and then connect over these, like, you know, the Asteroid client. And then eventually you can start moving your backend APIs into microservices. Mm-hmm. And eventually what you're ended up with is no Meteor at all because your front end is gone. And then your back end is slowly gone. So if you're trying to make that move, which, you know, slowly WorkPop is going to transition into some a bigger infrastructure, this yeah. is the first way to, to get there, you know. I was talking to Sasha about this, like, while we were working on the new version of Crater, and he was trying to get, like, I tried twice to get Webpack and Meteor, like, talking to each other, and there, there's actually a package for it, and, like, I just, I could not get it to work for either of the apps I was trying. Yeah. These were not telescope apps. These were client apps, and 
like build times were, I feel like becoming a significant problem. Like I was pairing with people and like remotely you just, you hit save and you're like, wait, 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 wait. And then <laughs> finally it comes back, you know, and reloads the page. And it just, it feels like there's that, that mismatch where like your mind starts to wander if it's too slow, you know, like you, you yeah. focus on the task at hand and you're like, Ooh, let's open up Reddit. Let's open up Hacker News. And like, that's terrible for productivity. Yeah. So, especially if you're managing a team, like just to touch on that, if you're managing a team, like not everyone is going to be like a hundred percent contributor, right? Like there's always going to be people on the team that are easily distracted or whatever. And the build time gives everyone an excuse, you know, but it's what I've been seeing in my, in my daily life. It's like, Oh, well I was waiting for the build tool. So, you know, I didn't get this done or something, you know, like, I guess Sasha tried to do Webpack as well, especially on the, the creator branch. And he posted a video about it. I think it's on his YouTube channel, but like he found it hard. And then we started talking about code splitting and he's like, code splitting just looks difficult. And so like, there's, there's definitely this, this dichotomy between Meteor being easy to get started and Webpack kind of being this power tool, but it takes a lot of configuration, you know? Yeah. And so like the stuff that you're talking about and the pain that you're feeling is like, it's definitely real and it's definitely something that has to be solved, but it's not necessarily a problem that everybody has right exactly. now, you know? Yeah. I just don't know if we'll ever see an easy to use tool that'll do things like code splitting, you know, and make it super easy on the user to integrate in a smart way. And it's not always best practice. Like for a while there, like, so I'll say the new creator sites at like 4.4 megs of JavaScript. Like it's yeah. not tiny. And I have a feeling like it just added all the OAuth stuff and I have a feeling it probably got bigger. So it's one of those things, like it used to be better to load one giant tarball of JavaScript through one request but I don't think that's the case anymore. Like once you start approaching yeah. four or five megs, like it's actually probably better to split it up into what the page needs to render, you know? Exactly. And these things start to matter more when you have users that care, right? Like, you know, sometimes your users will put up with, you know, five megs download time and that'll be good until a bunch of users don't, you know? <laughs> So. Well, I mean, speed always matters, right? Like you said, Google dings you. Like, I, I absolutely think we've been losing Google search traffic because yeah. it's been getting slower and slower, and we've been having problems with pre-render and that kind of thing. And so, like, moving to this faster version with, you know, um, server-side rendering, like, should be a significant boost, and I bet Google will reward us for that. These are known things, right? Like you can read a post by Amazon where they talk about like 100 milliseconds is the loss of millions of dollars for them in rendering time. So like it may not seem like it adds up at first, but it like over time it will build up and probably like cost you some users of your application if you're not careful. I wish the only thing I would have done differently is worry about that speed before, you know, like when my app was at four megs instead of nine, I should have worried about it then. Now we're worrying about it when it's, you know, it's not, not too late because the, you know, not, you know, we still got people and we're still alive and everything. But man, if I were to do it again, I would have worried about this problem a lot earlier. 
I would have probably done things like asteroid a lot earlier too. You know. I mean, it's it's hard. Like in hindsight, yeah, you you would you yeah, would probably pay that technical debt sooner. <laughs> but at the same time, like it's hard when you're still trying to find product market fit a lot of the time. So. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. All right. Well, the next topic of today is GraphQL and the amazing Apollo client. <laughs> I didn't put the amazing in there. The author did. This is a really good post. Um, a lot of people have been wondering, like, how do I get started with GraphQL and Meteor and Apollo and all these different things? And this specific one is not really Meteor related, but like, how do I get started with, you know, a view layer and Apollo? And there hasn't been many tutorials out. I'll be honest, the Apollo documentation is, you know, pretty crappy right now, mm-hmm. just because that's not the focus, you know, that's not the focus yet. So this guy... G Sands, which I don't know his actual name. Let's see. It's like Gerard, I want to say. I followed him on Twitter after I saw this. G Sands. <laughs> uh, Gerard Sands. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he's actually Angular 2 dev, uh, which is cool because, you know, the Angular 2 Apollo client is actually very, very, getting very mature thanks to Camilla. Anyway, back to the story. So he goes through what GraphQL is. Why it's the why there are benefits and for people who are new to the show or new to GraphQL, GraphQL is a application query language that replaces effectively replaces REST APIs, and it allows you to have a uniform uh, syntax for fetching data and mutating data on any client, whether that be mobile, web, or Windows Phone. Just kidding. So. That's pretty much what GraphQL does. Apollo Client is trying to solve the problem of how do I get started with GraphQL by giving you a pretty much a standard GraphQL client library that integrates with React Native, React, Angular 2, and that's it for right now. Uh, Just recently, the React uh, integration was rewritten. The APIs are rewritten to be more flexible for other view layers to come in, and now there's a bunch of changes, uh, which are really, really awesome. There's caching by default. There's server-side rendering. There's just amazing things going on with the React Apollo. Angular Apollo is the same way. Uh, APIs are changing. So the, these projects are in flux, but this post goes through how to build a to-do application in Angular and React. So, you know, pick your flavor and you can start learning Apollo. WorkPop is starting to architect our GraphQL solution. Uh, we are going to go with Apollo clients on the client, obviously React Apollo. And our the server, on the other hand, we're, we're, we're thinking if we're going to use Apollo server or not. Uh, just because we have a bunch of smart guys and they want more control over, you know, what they what 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 the structure is going to be. But if just to take that step back, Apollo server is not necessarily like, it's just an implementation of, you know, Express, GraphQL Express. It also has um, integrations with Happy and Koa and those type of server-side libraries. It's just a set of tools. So, if you, you, you know, anyone can build their own GraphQL server, but this is a Node.js version. So that's the whole GraphQL thing. This is a great post if you want to get into it. Now that people are seriously trying to think, you know, think about how they're going to put it into production, uh, I think it's probably a good time for people to get involved and get interested in the project. Um, we have GraphQL running in a work pop on our, you know, our internal, this internal dashboard. Uh, we integrated with Elasticsearch, so you can search users in our in our app, like 
you know, for people who need to like moderate and like, you know, you know, user management for our people who are in sales and stuff, we indexed everyone into Elasticsearch, but the Elasticsearch API is different than the Mongo users API, right? So uh, what we did is we unified that via the Apollo client. So, you know, building that UI was super easy because we didn't have to worry about different uh, syntactical sugar of Elasticsearch, which Elasticsearch is super weird if you never worked with it, mm-hmm. like how the, res- the data is or the, the results come back. Uh, and one thing I will say about Elasticsearch and GraphQL and Meteor at, at the same time is Meteor has this problem of publishing like counts, right? Like everyone has a, everyone has like this concept of like wanting to know the total amount of documents and you know, that count. So, Currently, you have to do a bunch of like you know observes to understand like how many um, how many documents are in a certain query. Uh, the good thing about Elasticsearch and GraphQL is you just depend on Elasticsearch for publishing those counts. So there's not like this live query cost of constantly watching counts. You know, so as you make the GraphQL query to Elasticsearch, it'll give you the results from that query and it'll give you the total amount of search results. So you can use that to power pagination or whatever. So. Other data sources become a huge thing with GraphQL, and especially if you're coming from a media world, you don't have, you never had access to these these data sources and the leverage that they have. But now you do, so that's it. Get into it. That's awesome because I, you know, I was just thinking about I've got a client project that I think could benefit from Elasticsearch, and I haven't started on it yet, so I may give GraphQL a try. See, the thing is, what we realized at WorkPop with the server guys is GraphQL doesn't make their life easier. It only makes the people building, like, UI and product stuff, like mobile apps, easier. They still have to do the same amount of work on the back end. It's not like this easier amount of work. But there's going to be less – like, here's the problem with the REST, right? The problem with the REST APIs is the way you write a REST API could be completely different than the way I write one. Yeah, like I've always, I've always had trouble. Like Twitter never does the right thing for their REST API, and like getting the data you need out of the Twitter API is always frustrating. So, like I, I totally get that because you want to be able to just say like, here's your user ID, here's all the data I need, give it back to me, and like you, you just you can't do that. You gotta like make five different calls to get all the data you want, and that's kind of terrible. So. I definitely see the benefit in GraphQL. And I think, you know, for people who haven't heard of it, like to put it into to meteor terms, it's like GraphQL server is going to be like the publication side, right? Like you're going to write your resolvers and they're going to be like your, your meteor publications. And then the react or uh, Apollo client or the angular Apollo client, like those are your mini Mongo essentially. And they're going to like get that data in and then let you, do things with it, and then whenever it updates, like it should rerun that code on the front end and do the right thing. Exactly. Um, one last thing about REST APIs versus Meteor versus you know Apollo. Meteor is good because you have simple schema, right? And you can always validate your request with check, or you can use match, or you can use simple schema itself. Yeah. Apollo has a type system, or GraphQL has a type system, so you can validate you know the certain queries or mutations you're doing. But REST has no validation system, right? So everyone rolls their own. Like, yeah. Every REST API has their own validation. So this is another reason to stay away from REST APIs because you, you're constantly going to be inconsistent. You're going to be rolling stuff yourself. 
Mm-hmm. And you're probably going to leave Easter eggs in your JSON blobs that say have no point of like being there. So anyway, that's another point. But, yeah. Yep. Cool. All right. So Meteor One Four One came out like yesterday. Like this is hot off the presses. I I actually was not expecting this. I wasn't paying attention to the Git repo. I've been like heads down working on other stuff, but this kind of hit me out of nowhere. And so they they've done some improvement. I actually haven't even put it into the app that I'm working on right now to see what kind of timing improvement there is. But so before. They were using a JavaScript implementation of tar. I, I read the deeper article. So if you go like in the show notes, we'll have a link to the, the announcement. But in the announcement, Ben Newman in a couple of spots says, hey, if you want to read deeper, go here. Like I, I read some of those links. He went from like 30 plus seconds to like four seconds by using native machine tar versus a Java, JavaScript implementation of tar. And so basically when they download a package, uh, from you know the the package server, then they would have to extract that, and it was that extraction process that was taking quite a while. And so you know he's saying that's like thirty seconds down to four is almost an order of magnitude there, like we're oh, yeah. close to an order of magnitude. So like I'm pretty excited for this myself. The other thing that they did, they switched to four point five point zero which is funny because I think the state of deployment in Meteor 1.4 is actually pretty, pretty terrible. That, that was one of the things that helped me out the most with Crater. I, I literally lost a day to trying to deploy Crater using MUP and Meteor 1.4. And like, yeah. it's just terrible. Like we, we gave up, we moved it back to 1.3 and uh, just deployed that way. So no node 4.4.7, but... So it's like, I have a feeling since MUP hasn't even caught up with a working Docker image, I worry like, what's it going to look like when it's got to be Meteor or Node 4.5 now? But the good news is yeah. like, this is the brand new LTS long-term supported version of Node. So hopefully that'll stick around for a while and it won't be quite as painful down the road. But it's really cool to see like how quickly they were able to to make that that switch to Node. The other thing, and this is part of it, is that there's no more publish for Arc. And so if you yeah. never published a package that had a binary dependency uh, from Node, then you, you would know that you had to do this publish for Arc, which would basically go out and make a build, a binary build. So when you download a package, Meteor would look at your... The system you were on and it would download the correct pre-built binaries for you which was nice but at the same time now that they're switching node versions a lot uh that's gonna be a lot more painful on package maintainers so yeah. he he outlines this you know basically for each version of node that they deploy you're gonna have to relaunch and re-release your packages and so instead, what makes sense now, and I thought this was coming as part of 1.4, you actually just download everything you need and then you compile it on the target machine, which I think is the right thing to do. That's the right thing to do. But at sure. the same time, like I have a feeling the forums and Stack Overflow are going to fill up with like noobs saying, I can't do this, you know, because yep. 
like they don't have the compiler tool chain installed and like it's cool if you can't figure that out but at the same time like what used to be part of a user-friendly process no longer will be <laughs> the more and more i realize like what user-friendly really means well this might be a generalization but the more experience I get and the more my product is scaling, I realize that user-friendly uh, has a lot of holes in it, you know? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of holes for user-friendly stuff. I see, like, the, it seems like the best tools are not user-friendly. <laughs> right. Like, the more powerful a tool is, the more configurable a tool is, the less user-friendly it's going to be. Like, yeah. Try to set defaults, but at the same time, like, it becomes hard because, like, it's hard to document it's hard to yep. understand all the options that you have. I'm at this place. I actually started writing an article that was like framework versus libraries and which one's better. And I, I think I, at this point, err on the side of libraries because I think they can build yeah. smaller, more focused teams that can put out something of higher quality versus what you know a, a big team can put out. And you complain about the build time. This is a this is a inappropriate thing to talk about is like they say meteor 142 will focus on fixing the build times but at the same time you know at what expense is that coming because we're not we only have ben now and most people don't realize it's only ben there was a thread on crater about improving the build times and you know i made a comment there that it's only been working on meteor now and people are like, are you serious? Like that to me, that seems like the project's dead. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, guys, just look. All you have to do is click through and look at the the uh, developer branch of Meteor, and it's just the solid wall of Ben's avatar for all the commits. There are like two or three commits in the first page from Tom Coleman, and I think he's like part time, Zol's part time on Meteor. Like everyone else is on a pop, and that's yeah. fine. But you have to understand that, like. Either the community has to take up the cause here or we're just going to get slower releases. You know, I don't know. Like, these are not easy problems either. If you no. go and look up um, the, the link on Crater about improving build time, uh, the ticket talks about there's a link to basically Meteor has a profiling tool to check out the speed for the builds. And like, they know roughly where you could probably make games, but some things still aren't instrumented there, so they don't know what's taking a long time. Meteor 1.4 seemed to increase CSS precompiler time dramatically. So that's I know that's one thing they're looking at for 1.4.2, but like people can pitch in and help. So I, I would advise you to do the research and go find these and try to pitch in and help. Like that's if if Meteor's your jam, then it's on you to make it better. Yep, I posted on there too. My uh, my profile, it was alright, pretty slow. But I will say, we found out that twenty five percent of our build time is with Tap I eighteen N. So if you guys have, com- I think compilers, the compilers, if you're using a package that is using the one point two in previous compilers, which Tap I eighteen N is, you might be screwed. You know, so it's not just about helping Meteor out. It's helping these packages that a lot of people use that are, have been upgraded to 1.3 or 1.4 because 1.3 had a huge gains in the compiler plugins, but a lot of people haven't done that. And I understand why because it's, you know, it's pretty touchy. You, know? you don't want to break everybody's well, It's hard, too. Like, as a, as a guy that, that previously 
wrote packages. Like I, I stopped doing it because it was just hard to keep up with the changes. And like, yeah. I remember we had probably like 15 packages out for differential. And when they went from uh, 0.7 to 0.8, that's when they switched to blaze. Like that was, that was a terrible week. Like I, I feel like I spent the entire week just updating packages and making yeah. plays, which, you know, this is part of the game, I guess, but like, it just, it wasn't a great experience. And so I think, and then like on top of that, you got to find all the the hidden documentation everywhere that kind of talks about the changes that are happening. So <laughs> the hidden documentation, <laughs> that's the real problem, right? Like it's that's the real problem. Yeah. It's like all these little links, like I, I really appreciate them putting in these longer discussion links and stuff like that, because that's the kind of stuff that was hard to find before. And now it's a little bit easier, but like, unless you're like super plugged into up to the minute media development, like it's kind of hard to find that stuff sometimes. Yeah. Another interesting thing is just Ben's kind of like candidness of saying like, this code is really poor, is like poorly written. I'm going to fix this, you know, like, He's the only one working on the media platform, but there's no one else I would rather want working on the oh, media. Oh, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, I'll like, take him over uh, pretty much any developer. <laughs> and, you know, right? Like, I mean, I loved Avital. I thought he was very, very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, you know, I remember when we first started using Meteor and the community did too, like, you know, Greenspan and Glasser, like these guys that, like, you know, even Jeff, who wrote the the beginnings of the, the the framework, everyone looked up to these guys as like, oh my god, they're like so smart, you know. Then this guy from Facebook comes in and he just like looks at their code and he's like starts rewriting most of it, right? Yeah. A lot of the media platform is still the way it was, you know. The, all the stuff that we complain about is because of the legacy. I really feel like Ben is making strides into these, you know, he's touching the things that no one else wanted to touch right yeah yeah absolutely like you know a good uh anecdote for that is like i worked on a project right after avatar left mdg we were on a project together and we both had the same objective which was to speed up the overall loading time on mobile for this application and like it just it was a tough task it was up to i think four seconds to load like initial like open the app and then data was there and it was ready to use. It was like four seconds of time. He was picking through and finding little hundred millisecond tweaks here and there, which is good. But I knew, I knew an easy win. He, he was just trying to figure out all these, these little wins. And like I went through and just did a, this dot unblock global in the application and cut the time in half, you know? And like, I think sometimes that can be an engineering problem as well. Like you have to be able to take a step back and say, actually, where's our biggest win going to be? And like, you know, with Meteor 141 and Tar, like that, that feels like a pretty big win to yeah. order a magnitude of speed gain there. So, yeah. That's cool. Good. All right. Last topic of the day is funny. funny. React binding patterns five approaches for handling this and this is in quotes because you know this uh <laughs> i've actually went on i went on the meteor interviews once and i talked about how i hate this in javascript mm-hmm. because even the most advanced engineers think they know the context of it when half the time you're still wrong you know <laughs> like you know in react when you're using classes 
there's several methods to actually bind the context of the React component to this, you know. And uh, Corey House, who's been just balling lately with these articles, like he did one about you know, stateless functional components that we covered, and I think he has a bunch of them. Um, but I think he works at Pluralsight. He just like wanted to spill the air or spill the beans or whatever on like the different patterns. Because I know a lot of people are very opinionated about how they bind or use this, you know. There's, so I'll go through them. Number one, he just said you could use the old school react.create class. And that's that used to auto-bind this. Mm-hmm. So when people started using ES6 React, people they were up in arms like, oh my God, I can't do anything. It's all broken. But it's because they just didn't auto-bind this, which I'm actually in favor for. You should never auto-bind anything. It's like Blaze auto-binding this to be the data context. Like, who the hell knew that, right? So I'm not a fan of this, but you can... (laughs) But you could, uh, you know, you could use create class and it'll still work for you. You can bind in the render function, which if you use Airbnb's React style guide, they will ban that because... Obviously, they're a huge application, so they don't want to bind in the render function because that'll create a new instance of the function every time render is called. But Corey says that if your app is small, that's just a premature optimization, you know. But, you know. Hey, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of this, and I'll tell you why. Like, binding in the render, I think, you know, looking at ES7 and getting decorators, like, I have a feeling we'll get auto-binding back. And, and I'm fine with auto-binding as long as you know you're doing it and it's like explicitly done at the top of the file or whatever. And I think that binding the render is going to be an additional problem at that point, right? Because you're going to have to hunt through your HTML code to find those like bind calls and replace them. And I just think it's not super obvious. So yeah. I don't think so either. That's why I always, that's why you guys, you know, people who use React, you should lean on the style guide and, Mm-hmm. JS, Lynn, because then you'll never even get into that habit in the first place. You know, I have a coworker that is super into binding in the render function and had several arguments, several arguments until I, you know, I, I kept saying that oh, it'll it'll actually cause a lot of problems. No one believed me. Then, lo and behold, I found the ESLint React style guide, which where it says exactly what I just said. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, so do you believe me now? Everyone freaking believed me then, so okay, fine, whatever. Trust your style guide, trust ESLint. Airbnb does a great job of keeping you honest. So yes, um, arrow functions in render—that's another thing. This is another thing. The first one or the the last one? Wait, which one? If you if you do oh, yeah. the, the arrow function, like you arrow function, same thing, same thing right? Terrible. Terrible. Don't do it. Don't do this one either. And ESLint, Airbnb, React won't let you do this one either. Oh, really? So, Interesting. I, yeah. I, honestly, like, I never even thought to use a fat arrow. So You can use function, the word function. Um, that's because they don't want you auto, you know, giving the context from the, the component into your function. So right. anyway, I don't recommend this, but Corey says it doesn't really matter. That's because he's trying to be neutral. I'm more polar than that. Number four, binding the constructor. This is the recommended approach. I'm into this one. This yep. is what I do all the time. Sure, I may have 20 methods bound to the constructor, um, but first, 
you shouldn't have 20 methods bound to a constructor. You should make smaller components. Okay. And two, this is like the most clear uh, place to do it because it's called the constructor. It's where everything starts. So you can understand and read from top to bottom where things are going to go, what the methods are exactly, you know, stuff like that. So I'm into this. This is what everyone else recommends. You know, for me, I do code reviews. And like, if I see any other style, but this, I will ding you on it because Number one, you're right, performance concerns. And then number two, like future code concerns, the people coming in behind you should be able to open the file, make a relatively quick glance and understand the events that are being handled essentially, right? Like you write these functions and you need to have the, the context bound properly because you're, you're handling some kind of event that happened in React and you, you want to run a function as a result. So like, there's a lot of pluses to this, and I, I fully get behind this one. So, Yeah. And the last one is you use arrow functions in the class property. This is actually pretty interesting. might be the future of how we do these things, but there's a class property feature that's being proposed, I believe, in, the, in, in ES 2016 or 2617, uh, which allows you to have, like, static properties and, like, class fields outside the constructor, so just, like... You know, just on the class, um, and then you, you use Babel to transform those methods into um, into the constructor, I believe. It's just because people don't like writing stuff, so, you know, <laughs> they don't want to do that. Uh, it also it'll also replace, like, component will mount. You won't need to do, like, the will mount calls. But anyway, that's besides the point. This is also interesting uh, just because... You know, arrow functions are great because you do want to bind context in. And, you know, I've worked on complex UI. I've never really needed to do, rely on arrow functions that much, you know, like pick your poison. I don't know if they're handy, like coming from a backbone background and using coffee scripts, like the arrow function was super handy. That's why, like, when I see it, I call it the fat arrow because in, in CoffeeScript, you have fat arrow and skinny arrow and like fat arrow rebound your context properly and skinny arrow just kept the context what it was. So Yeah. I miss, I miss the skinny arrow. Using arrow functions in your class is pretty much, it's the easiest way to go from create class to this because you can just yeah. replace the arrow. You're not going to have performance concerns like the binding in the render or arrow functions in render. And you're not going to have to write dot bind on everything. So you probably, like for those who want to save lines of code, like four letters or whatever, that'll be good for you too. I personally will go with the fifth one just because that's going to be the same thing as number four. Yeah. But you know, just <laughs> syntactical sugar, you know, like yeah, that's probably, it's probably the best one. But if you're a team that's kind of wary about adopting adopting new features, I'd hold off a little bit, you know. But if you're like gung-ho then go for it like my concern here would be like if this gets shot down exactly that's going to be a little weird right but it is is stage two proposal which i don't even know what that means stage two that means that it's it's, there's a draft out and the author is very sure about it they they're sure but the committee's not you know so but, you know, a lot of us are using stage two uh, properties today, like, you know, object rest spread, object spread, mm-hmm. which is stage two. Um, that. You know, like, decorators are stage two as well. Mm-hmm. So, like, you can use decorators. So. Yeah. But, you know, but you got to look at the authors, right? So, like, object spread author is Sebastian Markvich from React. So, 
Uh, he's a, a lot of people look up to him, so I'm sure that'll go through. And then decorators are from Yehuda Katz, who is from Ember. So that's going to go through for sure. These two like people who people look up to. Um, I don't know who did uh, trans- this class property feature. I think it's uh, Daniel Tishinder. hope I said that right. Yeah, so if, if we don't know who he is, probably not going to go through. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, come on now. It'll, do- it'll totally. It's a good, this is a good change. I think it will go through. It's just, you know, if you like living on the wild side, then go for it. If you don't, then don't do it. So. Yeah. All right. So I guess that's the end of the show. That's the end of the show. Yeah. That's it. Bunch of good stuff going on here. Yeah. It's good to catch up again this week. I'm excited. I will say, like, I I am committed to getting the new version of Crater launched. Like, I'm this close, this close. And if you're listening, like, it's super, super close. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, you, you can see. Yeah. Um, it's not an actual measurement, but like, so at this point we've got, um, the OWASP stuff seems broken and I've got to download either the dev version of MUP or roll back to a slightly older version of MUP because the, the one I'm using now, the log command doesn't work. So I can't see the Docker logs uh, for the new crater, which sucks. I don't know exactly what's wrong with the OWASP. I think it's throwing a uh, 500 error. So I got to figure that out. Oh, man. But once that's done, like, you know, we've got podcast integration in the sidebar. We've got, like, it links to the conference up in the top bar. I want to – the other thing I want to do is try to set up a public Slack room so anyone that's a Crater fan can jump in and we can have a Slack channel where we can talk. Uh, yeah. It'll be different than, say, like, Space Dojo Slack room, which you can get into through Patreon. But, you know, I want to, I want to have somewhere where people can – like, it doesn't cost you anything. If you're a fan of Crater, you can just go and talk and – have those those conversations you want to have. Like we we never really got like a Meteor Slack chat room. Like there, there's one for Apollo, which is pretty good, but there was never one for Meteor. I, I want to bring the community together in that way, and hopefully it's a, a positive thing. So Meteor forums. So there was a time where Crater was like the place to go for news, like because that back then it was like Meteor news. Mm-hmm. And then the whole Meteor forums came out and there was a bunch of drama. So everyone went to the Meteor forums. Mm-hmm. Now the Meteor forums is where dreams go to die. Like there's just like nothing productive going on there. And yeah. people who ask for help, they don't even get responses like they used to. Yeah. So, well, I mean, that's not the place to ask for help either. Like stack around. That's true. That's true. That place is dying. And I think with the creator rebirth, it's going to like bring back the traffic, you know, all the questions and everything and articles are going to come back to Crater. So I'm really looking forward to it. So Well, the thing that I think probably hurt the most with Crater is the fact that you have to have positive karma in order to post now. And so like, and I, I don't really talk about it. I'll just say this, like if you're a spammer and you listen to this podcast, we've set the bar pretty high. And so I'll say like, you have to have at least five positive karma, which means you have to get five upvotes on comments. I feel like there was a, a spammer the other day that asked me like how to get karma on Twitter. And I went and looked at his Twitter feed and I didn't answer his question because like it looked pretty <laughs> scammy. <laughs> but like, you know, that, that kind of hurts because you can't just come in and start, you can leave a comment, but you can't, you can't post a link. So, and that's, you know, we, we just can't have nice things because spammers. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we can't have nice things, man. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Blame the spammers. All right, Nami. Well, thanks, man. 
All right, no worries. I'll All see right, you next week. Yeah, tune in next week and we'll have more Dev News. This has been a Space Dojo production. You can find out more information about Space Dojo at spacedojo.com. It's easy to join the mailing list and stay in the loop. That's S-P-A-C-E-D-O-J-O dot com.